Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory. If you haven't already subscribed, please catch us wherever you love to listen to your podcast, from the Relevant Radio app to Apple, YouTube, you name it, we are there. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, please be sure to go and give us a five-star review to help other people discover the podcast. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. Welcome to our weekly happy hour. It is great to be back. Well, is it, you know, when you go on vacation, do you ever really feel like, oh man, I'm so happy to be back at this? Or is there a little bit of remorse, still wishing you were where you were at? We took a very fun vacation. We traveled through the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, enjoying the Great Lakes. We got to see Lake Erie, Lake Superior, and Lake Michigan. I went on some neat tours through uh, Munising that were really neat. This glass bottom boat tour, really, really cool. Get to see all these shipwrecks. There are hundreds of shipwrecks in the Great Lakes, and the majority of them are in Lake Superior. So that was really neat. And then we made our way through Michigan and ended up heading out to Wisconsin for a very fun lake trip there in Wisconsin. So that's where I've been the last week. Lots going on, lots of fun family time and reading that wasn't educational, which was wonderful. I am a total fantasy nerd when it comes to books. So that was fun to get to just read for the pleasure of it and float on the water. So that's what we've been doing the last couple weeks. And I've been reminded of how important it is, one, to take that time to pull away from the day-to-day routine. And I know my husband and I try to do this a lot on the weekends, you know, even if it's just for half a day or a day. It's easier when it's the summer. It's interesting. Studies have shown that people are happier during different seasons of the year. You know, Crispins tends to be one for many people. Summer tends to be one for many people. Spring, especially for people who live in uh, climates that get more snow and gloomy weather. Uh, but summer is a hot spot for many people. Just that inspiration with the longer days to you know step away from the day-to-day and do something fun. And it's a reminder, we don't have to take a week-long vacation. We don't have to take a two-day vacation, go anywhere special, but just change up what we're doing. It's so good for us to have that rest, rejuvenation, but also to have fun. We're surrounded by so many lakes out here in the Midwest. And so just, you know, picking a different lake to go to every you know weekend or when we can is one really easy thing to do. I remember as a kid how elated I would be to get to camp outside in the tent. I think some summers we spent like the whole summer out in the tent, you know, my dad rotating, you know, through the various kids ask various kids in the tent outside and whether it was on the back deck or in the backyard putting that campfire out. You know, you don't have to do something crazy for a trip and you know maybe you're taking a family vacation this year maybe you're 
trying to figure out what it is you'll do. You know, Labor Day is just really a matter of weeks away. What do we have? Five, six weeks until Labor Day. And you know, before we know it, we'll be heading into the colder weather. You know, take advantage. If you have a three-day weekend on Labor Day, maybe turn it into a four-day weekend. If you can go somewhere, go camping. I love camping. Although I will admit, I'm not as big of a fan of camping since we've been living in the Midwest. I definitely miss California camping, especially the mountains, because the bugs the bugs are real. I don't know how people do the bugs in the Midwest. I really don't. I mean, we have had we've had tick problems. I don't know if I've shared that. We found a couple tip ticks on my little girl. Oh, it was horrible. We've had ticks and terrible mosquitoes and flies and flies that bite, especially the baby. And these fly bites last for weeks. Anyways, I digress. The camping with the bugs has not been fun in the Midwest. And I'm not one to cringe at bugs, but boy, are there a lot of bugs out here. I can't wait. Again, still hoping and praying. We're still going back to California. I am a California girl through and through. I guess you got to know yourself. I Not that I embrace the bad politics, but hey, some people are called to go home and fight. Some people are called to go somewhere else to each their own. But today during our weekly happy hour, we're going to be talking about some really, really interesting topics. What makes us happier? Doing good or feeling good? That whole idea of should I do Should I do what's good or do what feels good? And for some, maybe that's an easy answer. Maybe you say, obviously, do what feels good, what feels right. Or some might say, well, do what is good. I think that these are debates that sometimes we think are very simple, and I think at the end of the day they are, but we don't realize how often in the moment-to-moment we actually do get it confused. Doing good versus feeling good ultimately comes down between altruism and hedonism. That is, hedonism following what's pleasurable, what feels good to us. But the reality is is that this is a part of fallen human nature. So we're going to talk about what makes us happier, doing good versus feeling good. We'll be joined by Dr. Nicholas Carderis, the country's foremost technology addiction uh, expert in the nation. He's an Ivy League educated psychologist and has taught neuropsychology at the doctoral level for some time. We'll have a fascinating conversation with him about that and the contemplative reflective life as a pathway towards happiness and fulfillment. I think these are important conversations uh, to have because it's easy to miss the mark when it comes to what makes us happy. That's why we talk about it every week. There's a recent study, and we'll probably talk about it tomorrow here on Trending, uh, that especially young people, young people, teachers are reporting that young people in, you know, who are still in grade school and high school are really struggling right now with happiness. And there are issues and topics and practices and truths and realities that we need to teach early on to help them be able to navigate the day-to-day, moment-to-moment in happiness. I want to talk right now about St. James. Before you do that, in a little bit, I'm going to talk about whether or not keeping up with the latest trends are actually making us happier. I've been thinking about this a lot, especially in terms of fashion lately. So we'll stay with that. But today's the feast day of St. James, known as one of the sons of Zebedee. Uh, We know him as a child of thunder, also known as St. James the Greater. Why the Greater? Well, there are two apostles named James. James the Greater 
and James the Lesser. St. James, whose feast day we celebrate today on 25th of July, is known as St. James the Greater because he's a part of the inner circle. That is the inner circle of the three apostles who were the closest to Jesus Christ, Peter, James, and and John. James and John are brothers. They're the sons of Zebedee. They were fishermen by trade. And John is, as we know, the beloved apostle, the fourth, the author of the fourth gospel, according to John, and of the epistles of John in the New Testament, as well as Revelation. James also has some books in the New Testament as well. And I'm going to share with you in just a little bit how to recognize St. James in art. I don't know about you, but sometimes I'll see a photo of a saint and it won't have the saint name on it. And I wonder who is that? And you wonder and you wonder and you wonder. And sometimes it's helpful to kind of know some go-to things that'll help you decipher them. But let's think about St. James's life. And I think it's significant, especially on his feast day. And I think it ties into the topics we're going to discuss today. I think St. James' life is an example of what it means to live a happy life, especially as we understand it from a Catholic worldview. He's someone who I would argue lived a life where he was very aware and self-reflective, who chose what is good over what felt good to someone, someone who contemplated and reflected on and conformed to the meaning and purpose of life. And that's much of what we're going to talk about today. It's interesting because if you follow his story, St. James goes from being a fisherman to being an apostle, follower of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the way his life ends is a bloody martyrdom. He's beheaded. So let's talk a little bit about where his story begins with Jesus Christ. I always find it fascinating, especially looking at the stories of James and John, who were brother apostles, uh, biological brothers, and then remember Peter and Andrew, who are also brothers as well. And James and John were known for following Jesus Christ immediately upon their calling. We actually read, for example, in Mark chapter 1, verse 19, that Jesus saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them. They left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed Jesus. And what stands out to me is that Jesus Christ, as soon as he sees James and John, we read literally, Mark says, Jesus immediately called James and John. And what do they do? They directly go and leave their father Zebedee in the boat with hired servants, and they go and follow Christ. And we're going to talk about self-reflection and how important this is for purpose and how we need contemplation in our lives to do so. And we'll get into some of the psychology of that, but it goes hand in hand with theology with the stories and lives of the saints. St. James had to have been someone who was very self-aware, who wasn't just self-aware, but someone who was pondering and seeking after truth, who, someone who could see truth, acknowledge truth, and follow it. You know, one of the questions that Pontius Pilate asks Jesus Christ as he has this moment of crisis is, 
he asked Jesus, what is truth? And Jesus himself, I always find it fascinating when he's talking to Pilate, before Pilate asks him, what is truth? We actually read that Jesus says this. When Pontius Pilate is questioning them, Jesus Christ says, For this I was born, and for this I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So we can see this in the example of St. James. He was able to ponder and contemplate and know truth and seek after it. And I think this is part of what led him to be so readily available to follow Christ in that calling that we read in Mark chapter 1. Now, some fun facts about St. James on his feast day. He was the only apostle whose martyrdom is actually recorded in the New Testament. Acts chapter 12, verse 2, verses 1 and 2. We read that about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands upon some who belonged to the church. At that time, he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews... Then Herod went ahead and proceeded to arrest St. Peter. Now, St. Peter, uh, you can follow the story, by the way. Really great time to pick, out, pick up sacred scripture and see where Peter went because he didn't die at that time. But what we read is that St. James, we know, was actually beheaded by the order of King Herod Agrippa I of Judea. So what we see in St. James is countercultural to what we see and what the world says about happiness. St. James was ready to sacrifice his life. And that goes against so much of what we believe about human flourishment and purpose and happiness. But the heart of St. James's story, like so many of the other saints, is this readiness to follow, seek after, and even be willing to die for truth. And the scandal of the cross, the scandal of what we saw in Jesus Christ was that he didn't do what the anticipated Messiah was going to do. People thought that they were going to have a political leader, a warrior king, potentially, even like David. But that's not what Jesus Christ did. Jesus Christ laid down his life. And so I think what's scandalous about this and why I want to talk about St. James's feast day today during our weekly happy hour is because what Christianity is teaching us is a sense of self-sacrifice in pursuit of truth, in pursuit of self-knowledge, in pursuit of the truth, which is God, that does lead to happiness. But what's so scandalous about it is that it's a reminder that we're not made for this earth. We're oriented toward God. And that's why we seek after and chase after truth and what he's calling us to so that we can be with him in heaven. And one way that that has been done has been, for example, in the life of St. James. Now, fun fact, if you're trying to identify St. James, the son of Zebedee, that is James the Greater in art, he's pretty much always depicted carrying a staff uh, representing being a pilgrim Uh, and sometimes they'll even be wearing a pilgrim hat not as common but another thing between the staff and also him carrying a book or a scroll is usually those are the easiest ways to pick him out in iconography Uh, in particular he wrote again I mentioned the New Testament epistles of James and so that scroll and that book represents 
the writings that he has in the New Testament. You're listening to Trending with Tim Murray here on Relevant Radio. Uh, I think that it's fascinating when we're talking about happiness in the world today. I think all people desire happiness, but we don't all know how to get there. Most of our actions are oriented out of a belief that They'll make us happy. And joining me now is Dr. Nicholas Carderis. He's a country's foremost technology addiction expert. And Dr. Carderis is an Ivy League educated psychologist. He's taught neuropsychology at the doctoral level. He's the author of a book, 10 out of 10 recommend. We'll post a link on social media to it. That is Glow Kids, How Screen Addiction is Hijacking Our Kids and How to Break the Trans. And Dr. Carderis, welcome to Trending. Well, it's always good to be here with you again, Timur. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. I want to talk with you today about what makes us happier. It, sometimes we oversimplify it, but there's this idea of does what doing is doing good or feeling good what will make us happy? Yeah, well, it's interesting that you phrase it that way because that's been the way that academics have been recently trying to research and explore and understand the path towards happiness, which philosophers and theologians and everyday people have been trying to figure out for the last several thousand years. Uh, you know, the ancient Greeks called it the good life and, you know, what, what entailed the good life. And obviously we talked about the theological approach to connecting with God. And, you know, so today we're living in a very challenging world of materialism and sensory overload and a world of the senses, as uh, maybe some of the ancients might call our present day world. And, and, you know, I happen to be in the, uh, I was a professor for a long time, but I was also, I'm also an addiction psychologist and an addiction is a, dis- a disease of more. And um, it's that insatiable appetite, what the Buddhists used to call the hungry ghost, where you can never get enough of things, whether it's substances or money or sex or materialism. Uh, and so when academics started studying what makes a person feel happy? And, and when, in the sense that the academics are trying to study it, it was sustained happiness because we know that on, on a very superficial short-term level, um, experiencing sensations, you know, the, what the hedonists would call the, the sensations of, of the senses uh, can, can feel good, you know? And here we're talking about sex and food and, you know, the, the seven deadly sins, you know, they, on the very short term, they release on a, on a neurophysiological level, they release dopamine, they feel good, but typically the, the feel good sensation is very short lived. Um, at the end of that experience, you go through a dopamine crash, a person typically tends to feel pretty guilty. Um, but researchers have discovered that doing good as opposed to feeling good had a much more intrinsic valuable, sustainable um, sense of feeling content or happy or fulfilled or meaningful. And so what they started doing in in graduate courses, they started asking students to alternate weeks where one week they were supposed to do good and the alternate week they were supposed to do something that felt good. And they were supposed to write in journals and rate their happiness on a scale of one to 10. And there were all sorts of other ways that they measured how those students were experiencing happiness and essentially what they found is what we just said is that on the weeks that the students did volunteerism they helped other human beings they did good works uh, their sense of fulfillment and happiness had a much longer shelf life 
than the weeks that they did things that felt good to their senses. Again, eating, sex, um, other types of indulgences. Very short, long-term feeling good, but at the end of the day, a superficial high. You know, it's interesting that this would be a academic homework assignment, essentially, <laughs> for college students. Because and I remember of maybe about six months ago, news came out that you can actually get like a master's now in happiness mm -hmm. or a degree in happiness studies, yeah. which I found fascinating. Because this is the question of all questions. How can I be happy? And the fact that a whole course was dedicated to alternating, alternating weeks on doing what feels good versus doing what is good. It touches on, as you mentioned, Dr. Carderas, this age old question that I mean, goes all the way back to the philosophers. And mm -hmm. I even think about what you're pointing to essentially that the research is showing that people are most happy when they do what is right. But one of the challenges I think in our culture, and you mentioned this with just with what we live in today, I guess we could argue post-Christian society, is mm -hmm. that as you mentioned, you know, the addictive uh, nature of culture, whether it be, you know, sex, money, drugs, uh, mm -hmm. technologies, they're so second nature today. And I really think that's because we've lost a sense of virtue in society that mm -hmm. orients us towards self-control. And yet this is what a lot of the ancient philosophers, such as Aristotle, before the time mm -hmm. of Christ, even emphasized that when we're virtuous, we're most happy. Well, well things like virtue and honor, you know, just, just really core values, ethics, um, have really been vaporized in the modern landscape. You know, they don't teach that really in school. If you go to public school, they won't teach civics or concepts like honor or virtue. And what's fascinating is that in essentially we've deified the wrong thing. So now we've deified and, you know, the, we pray at the altar of Wall Street or money materialism. I'll, I'll just give you a short example. For, for several years, I was the director of a very um, exclusive rehab center in the Hamptons in New York where, where we had clients who were some of the wealthiest people on the planet. These were billionaires whose airplanes were too large to land at the local airport. And these were people that have all the money in the world. And you couldn't have met a more miserable group of people that were addicted, unhappy, and empty. And, you know, I ran that program for several years and it was just right in front of me. It was proof positive of the old cliche that money can't buy happiness. So I would run these groups every day with seven or eight of some of the most wealthy, powerful people on the planet. And they just were, they were suffering from the disease of emptiness. And there was no amount of money was able to fill that, uh, that void that they felt. And, and it was funny because I tell the story one day, I was just getting kind of depressed working with this group of people that were, you know, had really no core spirituality, had worshiped money their whole lives and then found out that money doesn't buy them happiness. And I had to go home for lunch and I had, my uh, a young man, a landscaper that was doing work in my house with his wife and his teenage son. And it was a brutally hot day and they were doing brutally hard work. With, they were moving heavy rocks and they didn't see me pulling up. And all three of them had a deep, deep smile on their faces. They were working in this hundred degree heat and moving heavy loads of rocks. And I pulled up and I said to, to the man, to my landscaper, Jose, you're smiling ear to ear. You're doing backbreaking work. What makes you so happy? And he looked at me and he said, Senor Cardaris, I'm with my family. I'm working. I'm outside. I'm healthy. Of course I'm happy. Why shouldn't I be happy? You know, and he just had a profound sense of family connection, deep faith, by the way. And I felt like hiring him to go run groups at my fancy rehab in, in, 
he's talented. <laughs> because he had it. He had it figured out, and it was quite simple. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. My husband and I have been talking a lot about, you know, for him, career and work, and that mm -hmm. debate of, you know, do I want a job that provides for my family, or do I want a career? And I think many people come to this conclusion that, while yes, you know, pursuing something that allows you an upward trajectory in terms of work is excellent, but at the end of the day, you know, that family life is at the heart of what we're living for. And the society says otherwise. You know, society says absolute freedom, the highest paying dollar possible. But you just gave an example, I think is so blatantly clear that that's not what we're seeking. And you, you, know, you mentioned Christianity or, you know, having a belief system a little bit ago. And I think, Dr. Carderis, one of the challenges when we're talking about, you know, doing what is good versus doing what feels good, what do you do? I think this is hard in our current society mm -hmm. if we don't have some objective truth we don't have mm -hmm. order that ultimately comes from God. And I know you work with, you know, people of faith, people of no faith. How mm -hmm. do you see this work out yourself as well? If We might have to pick this back up as well. We have a few more and one more minute here. How do I see it with my clients or in myself with the. Well, with your clients, but also, you know, we could talk about in yourself as well. Well, you know, I was lucky enough to, I, I had a, a near-death experience where I almost died uh, 22 years ago. And, and that, there was a profound shift. That's when I changed careers. I shifted my whole life towards helping other people. I went back to graduate school. I became who I am today um, as a result of that. And, and I've studied near-death experiences since then. I've studied spiritual experiences since then. And oftentimes, people who have had either profound illness or near-death experiences um, it forces you to reflect and reevaluate your life. And um, when I work with people today who are feeling empty or depressed, um, sometimes they have a real aversion to talking about religion. And, and what I found, what I really became, I've studied comparative religions and philosophy, they're, they're more open sometimes to, I'll use philosophy as a backdoor towards spiritual conversations because they're less threatened by some of those conversations. And I eventually yes. get to the, to the spiritual, but, but sometimes I've got to sneak it in. And, and I find philosophy to be a little bit less threatening to people who are either very milita militaristically atheistic or, but, but, but they're dying, they're dying on the inside and they're, and they're still vehemently opposed to any kind of spiritual opening the door crack. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is interesting to hear that difference, that near-death experiences, uh, those experiences that make us think ultimately about what is the end? Is there more to life? You know, those things that surprise us really are game changers to help us understand that doing good also requires being oriented toward God. You're listening to Trending with Timory. I'll be right back with Dr. Nicholas Carderis. We'll talk about finding that pathway toward happiness and fulfillment on our weekly happy hour. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Join me tomorrow on Trending. I have some exciting news I really want to share with you, so be sure to join me Tuesday on Trending. Socrates has commented, that's the philosopher, that the unexamined life is not worth 
living. Oh, it's interesting because there's a fascinating trend within millennials, especially millennial men who have been taking back their lives, you know, going from kind of living on the couch, being bums, having or not having a job, but kind of just being in this dead end type of place, not driven. And yet many millennial men have been taking back their lives, suddenly driven, purposeful, responsible, ultimately living a happier lifestyle. And it's been interesting because they followed people such as psychologist Jordan Peterson uh, and retired Navy SEAL Jocko Willink. And in these two camps I've seen in particular, uh, you know, Jocko Willink, this idea that discipline equals freedom and taking ownership uh, for what you do and your actions. But then Psychologist Jordan Peterson has also focused quite a bit on self-reflection and even on journaling. So I want to talk about some of these trends and how all of us can implement them to ultimately live a happier lives. Dr. Nicholas Carderis joins me now to discuss how living a contemplative and reflective life is a pathway toward happiness and fulfillment. Dr. Carderis is an Ivy League educated psychologist. He's taught neuropsychology at the doctoral level. He's the author of a book I love called Glow Kids, How Screen Addiction is Hijacking Our Kids. I posted a link to it on social media. Just follow me at Timmery, T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E. And by the way, Dr. Carderis has a recovery center that effectively treats young people struggling with substance addiction, mental health, and or tech addiction use. So check them out at omegarecovery.org. We'll post a link to that on social media as well. Dr. Carderis, how can living a contemplative and reflective life be a pathway toward happiness and fulfillment? It, well, yeah, you've hit the nail on the head with what, what you just said, Tim Green, what Socrates had said. And if I can, plug my new book, uh, because in my new book, Digital Madness, the last part of, of the three-part book, um, The Solution, is, is entirely what we're talking about right now. Um, essentially, the, the cure, the antidote, the solution to the modern, you know, let's call it the what ails us in the modern age, uh, a life of emptiness, uh, sensory overload, um, vapid Kardashian uh, reality television, Candy Crush. Um, we're so immersed in, in just sensory nonsense. Um, and so many young people that I, I work with have lost their way because they don't have that, what you said before, they don't have sense of virtue, they don't have a tether to God, they don't have a spiritual connection, so they're adrift. So the antidote to a young, empty, lost person drifting, like Jordan Peterson has said, like Socrates has said, like I am saying in my new book, is to really lean into re-owning the, the locus of control in your life and reconnecting with something that's meaningful and powerful and creating a sense of purpose. So many of the young men that I work with that are addicted video game addicts. Um, they're living a vicarious hero's journey through a video game because their lives feel empty and meaningless, but yet they're living in a fantasy world where they're, you know, achieving level 138 in World of Warcraft and they're feeling a sense of empowerment, a sense of mission, which they don't feel in their day-to-day -day lives. They don't have any other avenue to feel that sense of accomplishment, the sense of purpose. So they experience it through this digital illusion. Um, but, but at the end of the day, it's, it's an illusion. So, so to, to spend a time each day looking up at the night sky and reflecting on the nature of existence as the ancients used to do, what the ancient Greeks used to call cosmology, you know, it's a sense of wonder at the natural universe, spending some time 
just in, in the sense of awe, the transcendentalists, uh, Thoreau, Emerson, used to just really, really connect through God through nature. Uh, nature tends to be the most immediate way around us so we could feel a sense of connected to something more than ourselves. Um, but we're drowning as a society that's becomes more and more challenging if everyone is in the basement locked away on social media or gaming or watching the Kardashians, they, they, they don't lean into that. And so, as you said, though, some young people are beginning to say here or no further. I want to own, I want to feel empowered through connecting through a higher power. I want to feel empowered by really not living on my senses and connecting to that transcendent piece of myself and my soul. At the end of the day, that's the transformation that, that, that I try to encourage in clients and in the book that I've, the books that I've written, uh, because we're swimming against the tide of a society that doesn't value that. And in fact, it's doing the opposite. If you had to create a society that is anti-spiritual and anti-true connection, we're living in it. And, and so we need now more than ever tools and, and supports, shows like yours, books like mine, but people to sort of remind us to stay awake and stay connected and find our faith and find our, our higher selves through, through, through a higher power. What I love that's so fascinating, Dr. Corderas, is that through psychology, through your work with you know people who are struggling with screen addiction, uh, mental health disorders, tech addiction, through you know your appeal from psychology into philosophy, it's leading people to God. And mm -hmm. something you just mentioned really, I think, was a particular notice. You know, we do you think that living in cities with indoor jobs? and mm -hmm. lifestyles uh, that are very far from nature. Do you think this has negatively impacted our ability to connect to the transcendent and ultimately lead us to God? Or do you think that there are simpler fixes and we can just stay in cities and stay in indoor jobs and be totally okay and still find a solution here? Well, I think it's a lot harder. If you're a cubicle working, isolated, screen staring, sedentary, um, fragmented, you know, 21st century human, it's harder. It's not impossible. It just means you have to be more proactive in seeking that connection. So you don't have a, a, a person who is a cubicle working city dweller doesn't have the luxury of having, let's call it a passive nature connection or passive sense of spirituality. They have to seek it out. They have to proactively, because unfortunately that type of life is intended to vacuum out um, our humanity and our spirituality. Um, you know, that kind of dehumanizing existence, which is why our suicide rates are so high. It's interesting because China, if you look at China as an amplification of some of the most toxic dynamics in our society, and you look at some of the city factories like Foxconn, where they make the parts for Apple computers, it's a city factory of 400,000. It's essentially to, to city sweatshop of 400,000 people. They were committing suicide at such a high rate seven suicides a week and at one point there was a, a mass suicide of 150 people at that factory that they had to put suicide nets around the factory they weren't addressing the underlying dehumanizing aspect of working 15 hours a day on an assembly line in an apple component factory where a person had no tether to anything deeper no sense of purpose or meaningfulness at all and wondering why people just wanted to end their lives and so 
if we're if we're all on that assembly line, it, metaphorically or literally, it's a lot more challenging to um, to look up. It's 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 the allegory of Plato's cave, uh, Plato's cave dweller who was living in the cave and thought it all the world was was the shadows that he saw ahead of him on the wall, and he had to break his shackles and be able to turn around and look towards the light. And once he saw the light, he initially was blinded, but then he realized he'd been living an enslaved life of illusion. And, and that's where I think we're at. I think the digital cage that we've been put in by big tech has been keeping us in the illusion, keeping us in the cage, keeping us on the treadmill, the gerbil wheel of consumerism and chasing our tails. And, and that's where we have to say here and no further, we have to awaken to the trap that we were in. Mm. I think that's so important what you're saying about how city life and desk jobs are intending us are intended to be, as you said, a vacuum that is pulling us away from the transcendent and pulling us away from our orientation toward God. And I even think of it, you, know, you give the example of the factories and I even think of, you know, these tech companies, like you said, Google and Apple and many organizations that are going in this direction of this live at work mentality, you know, like, Hey, we'll give you nap pods. We'll give you gyms. We'll give you uh, uh, food cafeteria. To, to, to me, a, a thousand percent. So it's the seduction we're going to see. And, and the workers think there's in the swell. We have a nap pod. We have a, we have a seesaw. We have, you know, dry cleaning on site and they don't realize that they're being trapped and seduced into this kind of work cubicle lifestyle that's really keeping them, but they're being trapped by, again, these sensory toys that they're not being given deeper, more meaningful spiritual experiences. They're just being given more gadgets, more shiny things, more little things for them to be distracted by. So we're living in a society of distraction. You know, at the end of the day, we're a distracted society that, and, and, I, and I think that's by design because I think if, again, if people were to wake up on mass and find their spiritual tether, it's, it doesn't, that doesn't monetize well, right? That doesn't, the cash register doesn't ring for, for the, for the oligarchs and the big corporations. If we all sort of wake up and find our spirituality and say, we're going to live a more embodied life, a more spiritual life, um, because that's going to be a less consumer driven life and that's going to be less product driven. And, and so that's, that doesn't work for some of the folks that are, um, using some of the most sophisticated behavior modification techniques to keep us in the journal wheel. Mm -hmm. Coming back to our original idea that this has all been directing on, that contemplation and living a re reflective lifestyle is a pathway toward happiness and fulfillment. That this is what ultimately directs us toward God. And I would argue that through this, you, know, you talked earlier about how, you know, the Greeks, the philosophers before us, you know, they would go and contemplate mm -hmm. the world. They'd look at, they'd mm -hmm. seek out what is truth, what is order, and they'd mm -hmm. seek to conform themselves ideally to that. Sometimes I think in mm -hmm. our society, we tend to worship nature instead of conform to the order and reality of it. But I look at the great wisdom and tradition of the church and Christianity, you know, things such as, you know, what we've been told by the saints and the mystics who've gone before us, you know, spend 30 minutes a day in prayer, you know, do things such as Lexio Divina, which is Latin for divine reading, you know, reading sacred scripture and meditating on that truth and those stories right. that are meant to bring out the good, the true and the beautiful. Do you think that part of that Dr. Carderis is also um, that we've lost the habit of journaling? Cause I've seen people such as Jordan Peterson really pushing for this. And it seems sometimes like more of a feminine thing or in kind of idle thing for teenage girls. Is this a part of that? 
Well, maybe, but, but do you mind if I take it in a slightly different direction? Because you mentioned contemplative meditation and contemplating the life of the spirits, like St. Ignatius of Loyola, you know, when the Jesuit belief when, when he was injured as a, as a soldier and discovered that when he contemplated the life of the saints, he, he himself became elevated. So it's that Thomas Merton idea, and he writes about this in Mystics and Zen Masters. Well, Thomas Merton used to write a, a lot about this, that when you contemplate the infinite or the divine, you become closer to the infinite and the divine. But meanwhile, in our society, which is very, it's very chic to meditate, it's these Eastern types of empty, the Japanese call it empty cup meditations or Vipassana, mindfulness meditation, where you're sort of yoga. emptying your mind, <laughs> yoga. Mm-hmm. You know, Carl Jung Nirvana. talked about it. Where, well, Carl Jung said, we're, we're seeking answers in the houses of the strangers. We are Westerners uh, and, and our foundational beliefs have come from Western culture. And whether that's Christian and ancient Greek and some of and, and the intermixture of those two. And the ancients and the theologians believe if you contemplate the nature of God, you become closer to God. So these were contemplative types of meditation where you weren't just emptying your mind. And it wasn't, these weren't just sort of Eastern types of, um, you know, that might be good for stress reduction and it, it has a place and a purpose. I, I'm not anti-mindfulness, but I'm, I'm a stronger proponent of contemplative meditation where you're actually contemplating the divine, the good, um, higher ethics, because then, as Merton said, the more you contemplate that, the more you become that. And you can actually merge with what the object of your contemplation is. And, and that's how we get that to that Godhead point rather than, um, or, or at least it's one of the mechanisms that I think we can get there. And so as a psychologist, when I see people stuck in, and again, these, these toxic patterns, when you try to shift them out of that and help them do that, I, I've been blessed to work with addicts. And addicts oftentimes are blessed with a gift of uh, a, a dramatic shift, uh, a God awakening, because they've been through something horrific. And all of a sudden, the only way out of their addictive pattern is to find something deeper and spiritual, more meaningful. And so you, I, I see it in the laboratory of addiction rehabs, where through 12-step programs, where people who were living very toxic, unhealthy lifestyles, all of a sudden became awakened to a, a deeper truth and became clean and sober through a spiritual program, through a spiritual connection. And you see it, you see it. And, and there are people who, who don't have that opportunity who are atheists or skeptical and, and or cynical about something like a, uh, spirituality or 12-step programs or religion. And yet they haven't seen the transformations that, you know, I've been doing this for 22 mm-hmm. years. And, and you just see the miracles every day of people who shift or who are open to these shifts who can then shift their lives. Um, it's, it's amazing. I'm so glad you brought this up because we live in a culture where this push toward Eastern religions, such as yoga, Buddhism, this mm-hmm. push toward nirvana and that self-emptiness, people are worshiping yoga today. They're turning to what is it giving their body physical relief, you know, giving them an opportunity for contemplation. But to what you're saying, especially as a clinical psychologist, that choosing contemplative meditation, orienting yourself toward truth itself and God, that's what's making people happy happier that goes against what the culture is wanting to believe and i'm so grateful that you were a voice out there saying this check out dr nicholas carderas work omegarecovery.org and we posted links to his books as well
We're talking about what you're thinking about. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Stick with me tomorrow here on Trending. I have some big news I'm excited to share with you, so stay with me. Uh, But I want to talk during our weekly happy hour about this idea of trends and following trends in our life. And I've been asking this question of myself, and I think it's a question, especially as people of faith, that we need to be asking. Is keeping up with trends making us happier? And I ask this question because as Christians, as Catholics, we are called to be countercultural. We're not called to just defy the culture and do whatever we want. We're not called to just reject pop culture. What we're called to do is not be conformed by the ways of the world, but to be transformed by the life of God, the life of Jesus Christ. This is why we were talking about St. James earlier and how, you know, we were just joined by Dr. Nicholas Carderis. And with Dr. Carderis, we were talking about happiness. And from a psychological, a psychologist perspective, infusing that with philosophy and into theology, we we're talking about how doing good over feeling good is what makes us happier. We talked about how contemplative and reflective living is a pathway towards happiness and fulfillment. Contemplation of God, not the self-emptying spiritualism of Buddhism, Hinduism, and some of the various Eastern religions. And I think St. James gives us an example of that, that not by following the ways of the world, not by just going with what the culture says, but by actually seeking truth and in being, in a certain respect, countercultural by following the culture of our Lord Jesus Christ, which will always be in juxtaposition, but will always be poised against the modern culture. That's what we're called to. And I was thinking about this in particular this past week with regard to fashion. This last week, I was on vacation. And even just throughout the summer, I've been looking at the summer beach trends and seeing, especially being a mom of you know, a toddler, year and a half, seen bathing suits on, I'm talking about like three-year-olds, five-year-olds, eight-year-olds that are so heavily inappropriate for any child to be wearing. And I'm even talking about some of the one-piece bathing suits where they're literally riding up these poor little kids' bums. And it's not because it doesn't fit the kid. It's because that's the style. The style of bathing suits for adult women is very revealing, does not cover the full behind of a person. And so the trends for kids bathing suits have followed in the same direction, even one pieces. And I look at the clothing that so many of us women wear when it comes to beach wear, where we're trying desperately to essentially feel good about ourselves and attract people the opposite sex. And I think of everything from what I learned a number of years ago that was so eye-opening for me about the history of the bikini and how I look at how the culture changed when it came to the bikini. Um, I remember there is the evolution of the swimsuit. We'll have to post it on social media. Jessica Ray is an actress. She's known as having been the original Yellow Power Ranger. And Jessica Ray actually started a whole swimwear line of modest bathing suits. But what brought me to her, I think just around before she started her bathing suit line, was actress Jessica Ray did a presentation on the evolution of the bathing suit. And 
and it was fascinating. Uh, she talked about how prior to the 1940s, uh, the bathing suit, the string bikini, it was not something that was even seen in the modeling world. And how, in fact, they couldn't even get a French model to wear the string bikini. They had to pay a stripper to model it for the first time. Now, it's fascinating because this came out in the 1940s. And initial reaction reaction was a rejection to the bikini between the 1940s and the 1960s. In fact, people could be kicked off the beach for wearing something as such. Um, women's fashion magazines rejected the idea of the bikini. Even that song that we know, if you've ever listened to the lyrics, the itsy bitsy teeny weeny yellow polka dot bikini by Brian Highland, if you actually listen to the words, it's about the discomfort of wearing that bikini. And it essentially is pointing to this transition in bathing suits that it wasn't until the so-called liberation of women with second wave feminism and the sexual revolution that we saw this shift in attitude regarding bathing suits. I do find it funny. I know bathing suits is a sensitive topic as is modesty and all of that, but I think it's funny because people like to compare like, okay, if we don't wear this, what are we going to go back to weighted pants and um, <laughs> swimsuits on wheels? Did you know that this is how far modesty actually went. And I'm not saying this is what we need to go back to, but I'm just pointing out how far and what people like to point to. It was some people would actually, like women in particular, just wouldn't go swimming. Or they had these big tent things where you would roll and walk into the water, but you'd still be fully clothed. I actually think that there might be one of these in the Queen Victoria show done by BBC. Or one of those shows recently where they had a... a um, swimming suit on wheels. Or it used to be that people would wear, you know, fully clothed, women would wear fully clothed um, clothing, and they'd even have weights at the bottom of their pants so that their pant leg wouldn't even slide up because, you know, you can't see that ankle. I mean, so we're seeing these stark contrasts in bathing suits. But all of this really does bring me back to where we fit in as Catholics. It makes me ask the question, in our society today, are we happy just going along with trends? Am I happy doing and wearing what other people are doing and wearing? I think there's a balance between beauty and keeping up and conforming with fashion standards in society, from clothing to behavior. And it's one of those moments where all of us, and I think this is a part of, you know, our ongoing conversion, because we should always be praying for our own conversion. Where do we stand as people of faith? We should be setting the trends. Christianity itself, Jesus Christ's coming, elevated the value of women in society. Last week, we just celebrated the feast day of St. Mary Magdalene, known as a Mary, who's whose feast day we're going to celebrate, Mary of Mary and Martha, who sat at the feet of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ said she chose a proper place when normally it was the place of a man to be there listening to the teacher and it was for the woman to serve. You see, Christianity uplifted the place of women. Christianity has been countercultural. Christianity, and I think when we take this into the fashion culture we live in and how we choose clothing, is meant to restore truth, beauty, and goodness and reclaim these areas with independent fashion choices, not self-seeking independence, or f but freedom from the culture and freedom to choose what is true, good, and beautiful for clothing. 
This is Timory from Trending with Timory. Tuesday, I'll discuss how you can be a part of a national strategy to help pregnant moms and babies, especially when our crisis pregnancy centers are under attack. I'll also discuss a guide for churches to help pregnant and parenting moms in need and how you can get involved in bringing this to your church. Join me Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central on Relevant Radio or the Relevant Radio app.